where we're going to continue in our series out of the uh, looking at the different kings of Israel and of Judah. Uh, JT will be speaking this morning. Let's give it up for JT. Thank you. All right. Hey, so a lot of you guys know I have a, a, a little daughter named Olive, so I don't have a ton of free time anymore. But when I had free time, one of my favorite things to do was to go see live music. I, I love going to to concerts and and I my favorite thing is to go to like like these little smaller venues that are kind of intimate settings um, I don't go to a lot of like arena rock shows but I have been to a few but I, I just love seeing live music and uh, a number of years ago I had the opportunity to see a band at one of these huge arena shows I saw the band Coldplay and I really like that band. I think they, they put out really good music, and I really enjoyed the show. It was really cool visually. Um, they played really well. But there's this moment in the show, it's like the climax, where they play one of my favorite songs. They play this song called Fix You. And the song Fix You is this you know, beautiful love song. It is like lots of dynamics. It's really sweet and subtle. Then it gets big and loud, and I love that music. Um, and I remember during the show, it was really powerful, and I wanted you guys to experience a little bit of it. So we have this video I want to I show you. I'm inviting you guys into the experience that I had, and I want to I point some stuff out about it. you guys could feel that? Could you guys experience the passion and the excitement there at that show? Um, one thing when I was there that I noticed, I remember looking around, I was getting caught up in the moment, it was really powerful, and I remember looking around at the people around me, and their, their hands were up in the air, their eyes were closed, some, some of them had tears rolling down their face, and it was just, they were singing along, there was so much 
passion. And I remember thinking to myself, it's almost like they're worshiping. It almost feels like they're worshiping. And I remember the Lord spoke to me in that moment at this Coldplay concert and said, it's not like they are worshiping. They are worshiping. But the people at the show really were worshiping. And the truth is, is that we were all created to worship. And maybe the people at the show, maybe, maybe they were worshiping all kinds of things. Maybe they were worshiping how awesome Coldplay is. Or maybe they were worshiping, you know, the moment of being gathered together with all of these people and this experience, and they were worshiping this experience. Or, or maybe, you know, they were worshiping love. Like this song is a beautiful song about love and heartache, and they were worshiping love. Or, or maybe... They were worshiping how handsome Chris Martin is, or I don't know. They could have been worshiping anything, but we were created to worship. We have been hardwired. It's in our DNA to be worshipers. And I'm not talking about, you know, the, the, the songs that we sing. You know, while that plays a big part in it, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about, when I say we were created to worship, I mean... There is a throne in our hearts. There's a throne in our life. And who sits on that throne? Worship answers that question. Who sits on the throne? And by that, what I mean is, what is it that guides you? What is it that controls you? What is it that you live for and live by? Who gets to say? Who has the final say in your life? I also mean, what are you pursuing? What is that thing that's the object of your affection? The thing that you think, oh, this is the thing that's going to make me feel happy or complete or safe or secure. What is the thing that you're pursuing? Worship answers those two questions. Who sits on the throne of your life and what are you pursuing? Who or what are you pursuing? We all worship something, and we're going to be looking at a story today that on the surface looks like it's about war. It looks like it's about war, but really what it's about, it's, it's about worship. It's about worship. It's about who we worship, what we worship, why we worship, how we worship. And so we're going to be digging into this story, but before we do, let me just pray. Lord, we do just come before you right now and we worship you. We just ask for you to be glorified this morning. We thank you for being with us. We just ask that you speak to us in your name. Amen. So like, uh, like we said, we're going to be continuing our King series where we're looking at different kings in the Old Testament. Um, and today we're going to be looking at Abijah. And Abijah is a, is a not very well-known king. I'm sure... If I asked you guys, you guys would all be very familiar with Abijah. Um, that's not true. I wasn't even very familiar with Abijah. But after I studied him, I realized there's a lot of interesting stuff about him. He had a very, very short reign. And the Bible really only tells us one story about him. But his, his reign was from about 913 to 911 B.C., so only about three years um, and one thing that's interesting about them is usually the kings in the Old Testament, when they begin to tell their story, they would give a, a brief synopsis. They would say, this king did what was right before the Lord, or this king did not do what was right before the Lord. They like kind of say, this is a good king, or this was a bad king. And for Abijah, they don't say that. They don't tell us whether he was a good king or a bad king, and probably because he was a little bit of both. 
Um, but so last week, remember, we had talked about how the, 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 the people of God, the nation of Israel, had split into two nations. Remember, we talked about Rehoboam, who, who you know, didn't listen to the wise counsel and, you know, went off and did, you know, unwise things, and the kingdom split because of, because of what he did. And it split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, for some reason, got to keep the name Israel, but the southern kingdom became the kingdom of Judah. And you can put up this map here to kind of show what that would look like. So the green is Israel, the purple is Judah. And Abijah is the king of Judah. Abijah is the king of Judah, and there's a guy named Jeroboam who is the king of Israel. And Israel, at this point, had really wandered away. They had pretty much abandoned God. And really, if you look at the story of Israel um, during this king series, Israel, you know, pretty much the whole time had walked away from God. They had, like, no good kings. Judah had a number of good kings, but Israel, like, had just really abandoned God. And at this time, they had, they had uh, driven out all the priests, all the priests out of the temple. They had become really corrupt. They began to um, adopt the idols of the different cultures around them and began to worship many different gods. Like they had gods of, of you know, agriculture and gods of war and gods of fertility and God, you know, you name it. They had a god for it. And yeah, maybe the god of, of Abraham and David, maybe he was, he was still one of their gods, but he wasn't the, the god anymore. They had abandoned the, 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 the ways of God. They began to bring in all of these, these idols, these golden calves. They, they turned the temple into this place where they would do fertility rituals. And you could probably imagine what that, what that was. But um, at this time, a civil war had began to take place. There was a civil war happening. And when we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us how the civil war started. But Israel and Judah were at war with one another. And most scholars believe that Israel was the aggressor, that they were the ones who started the war. But we, we, we don't know for sure. But what we do know is that Israel had a way bigger army. They, they outnumbered Judah about two to one. So there was like, you know, it was, it, was, it was not even a contest. It was this huge army with a not very, very large army. So where we're going to look is this key battle in the middle of this civil war. And it's called the Battle of Mount Zimmerarian. And this story, Abijah, he stands on top of this mountain and he delivers this like really passionate speech. This amazing speech. And most of the time we've seen the movies where the, the king or the military leader just delivers the speech. But the thing that's interesting about this speech is he doesn't give it to his own people. He's not speaking to the kingdom of Judah. He's speaking to the kingdom of Israel. He's speaking to, like, the bad guys and giving them a speech. And listen to what he says in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 13, starting in verse 4. He says, Jeroboam, King Jeroboam and all Israel, listen to me. Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, son of Nebat, an official of Solomon, son of David, rebelled against his master. And some worthless scoundrels gathered around him and opposed Rehoboam, son of Solomon, when he was young and indecisive and not strong enough to resist him. He's basically calling them worthless scoundrels. So those are fighting words where I come from. 
He says, And now you plan to resist the kingdom of the Lord, which is in the hands of David's descendants? You are indeed a vast army and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made to be your gods. But didn't you drive out the priests of your lords, the sons of Aaron, and the Levites, and make priests of your own, as the peoples of other lands do? He's calling them out. He's calling them out. He's basically saying, you guys have abandoned God. You guys are off track. You guys have gotten so far away from where you should be. You guys worship idols. You guys have like pushed out the priests. I mean, your king is not even fit to be king. He's not a descendant of David. He's calling them out. But then he goes on to say in verse 10, he says, As for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. The priests who serve the Lord are sons of Aaron, and the Levites assist them. Every morning and evening, they present burnt offerings and fragrant incense to the Lord. They set out the bread of the ceremonial clean table and light the lamps on gold lampstands every evening. We are observing the requirements of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken them. And this, this, this next verse is key. God is with us. He is our leader. He is our leader. He said, you have abandoned God, but we have stayed true to him. He is on the throne of our lives. Essentially, what, what Abijah is saying is worship matters. Who sits on that throne matters. He's saying, you know, who sits on the throne of your life? And what, what is that thing that you're pursuing? He's saying worship matters. Abijah understood of coming under the kingship or the lordship of God. That God needs to be central. God needs to be the thing that rules us, that, that guides us. But he also needs to be the thing that we are pursuing. And he understood that. And this is the heart of worship. This is what worship is really all about. You know, if we've simplified worship into, you know, the 20 or 30 minutes of the songs that we sing before the sermon or, or, or you know, the genre of music on our iTunes playlist, then, we, then we've missed out on what worship really is. We really have. We really, really have. And I truly believe that if that's our definition of, of worship, if worship is simply this, th this musical thing that we do, then I, I really believe that we're not really worshiping God. We're not really worshiping God. Let me, let, me, let me say it like this. One of the things that I do here at the church is I oversee the worship and arts department. And uh, about, you know, every other week I'll lead worship up here. And after I finish leading worship for you guys, one of the things that I'll do along with a number of other people is we will go back and lead worship for the children, which is really fun. I really, really enjoy getting to the, the privilege of leading worship for the, the little guys and little girls out there. And they've, they've told me some really interesting things about you guys. So, no, that's not true. Um, but it's so much fun. And one thing I almost always say when I go back there, is I go back there with my guitar and I say, hey, do you guys know what we're about to do? And they say, we're going to worship. And I say, yeah. Now, what does worship mean? And they'll give me all different things. They'll say, worship is singing. Worship is this. Worship is that. And I'm like, yeah, it is. It is. I'll say, but you know what worship really is? Worship is when we say, Jesus, you are number one. You are number one, Jesus. You are the strongest. 
You are the coolest. You are the, you are the kindest. You're number one. And you guys know that we can say that um, with our words. We can say it by singing songs. But the best way we can say it is by the way we live. Like, do you guys know that when you're obedient to your mommy and daddy, that's worship? And do you guys know when, you, when you're honest and you don't tell a lie, that's worship? And, and when you are nice to that kid at school that people are picking on, that's worship. And the truth is, for us, it's the same thing. Worship is about the way that we live. It's saying, God, you're in control. God, you are on the throne, and you are the thing that I'm pursuing. You are on the throne, and you're the thing I'm pursuing. Real, true, honest worship answers that question. Who am I living for? Who or what am I living for? What is that thing? What is that purpose? What is that person? What is the driving force in my life? I love how Paul says it in Romans. Romans 12, 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, of, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What Paul was saying is, is giving your life for something is worship. What are you living for? It's saying, I'm going to sacrifice my life and live for you, God. He's saying, forget about the, the burning of incense, forgetting about the, the traditions and the songs that we sing. Those things can be good, but worship is about who are you living for? I'm living for you, Jesus. That's worship. It's more than just singing it once a week at church. I mean, think about it like this. I'm, my wife is named Laura, and I really love Laura. She's amazing. And if once a week I sat her down and I said, I'm going to take about 20 or 30 minutes to explain to you how wonderful you are. You know, you're, you're, you're beautiful and you're kind and you're, I love you. But then the rest of the week, I did whatever I wanted. And I flirted with other women and I treated her poorly. I didn't, I didn't listen to her. I didn't talk to her. But once a week, I, I stood there and I said, this is, this is how great you are, Laura. Those words would be empty. They wouldn't mean anything. And the same thing is true with our worship. We can say these truths about who God is here on Sunday morning about that you are great and your love is amazing, all of those things. But if we're not living that way, then those words really mean nothing. Real worship is a lifestyle. It's saying, God, there is no part of my life that's off limits. Everything that I do, I do it for you. Everything that I do. For, for you know, moms. When I'm changing that hundredth diaper of the, week, of the week, that can be worship if you're doing it for the Lord. You know, if you're a business owner, to, to, to uh, be honest in the way you conduct business, that's worship. Literally, everything can be worship if we have it under the submission of, of the Lord, if we say, Lord, you're in control. You're the boss. Nothing is off limits. You know, if you were to say that someone, you know, worshipped cars, or if you were to say that someone worshipped money, if you're like, that guy, Joe, worships money, what would that mean? 
It would mean that, that money is that thing that he craves, the thing that he's pursuing. It's that money is the thing that dictates his decision. It's what he thinks about, what he, what he dreams about. It's where he finds his identity, his security, his purpose. That's what worship is. Where do you find your identity, your purpose? What are you living for? What have you elevated up above other things? What have you said, this is what I'm living for? And maybe you haven't said it with your words, but your actions are saying it. So we all worship something. Every single one of us worships something. There's this, this quote by this guy named David Foster Wallace, who's a really brilliant author. He's not a Christian author by any means. Um, so if you look up any more of his quotes, and actually this, this is from a speech that he gave that's phenomenal. But he uses some colorful words in there. I'll, I'll give you fair warning. But listen to what he says. He says, In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. He's saying we all worship something, whether it's, whether it's money, whether it's you know, career, whether it's you know, Jesus. What do we worship? What is on the throne of our life, and what are we pursuing? Because we are hardwired to worship something. God made us to worship. He, when he created us, he put that desire inside of us to worship him. That's what we were made to do, is to worship him. And because of the fall, because of sin, that became distorted. That became completely distorted, but that desire is still inside of us. There's still that desire to worship something, to live for something, to pursue something. But, we, but we've begun to put other things on that throne and begin to pursue things that aren't God. Who is on the throne of your life, and who are you pursuing? So maybe more importantly than worship matters, maybe more important is who or what we worship matters. Abijah understood the significance of who we worship matters. He called him out. He said, you guys are worshiping these golden calves, but we are worshiping God. God is on our throne. And we may say today, most of us may say, God is on the throne. God is on the throne of our lives, but are our lives demonstrating that? You know, I, I saw you guys. We were all singing those words. Most of us were. But are we, are we living that way throughout the week? And I don't know about you guys, but I regularly have to recenter my life. I regularly realize, oh man, there's something else sitting on that throne. Like, you know what's been sitting on that throne this week was, you know, fill in the blank. Like, the thing that I care about is my 401k this week. Or the thing that's been sitting on my throne this week is the way people see me or what people think about me or if, if I'm cool or, or, you know, whatever it is. So many things have sat on that throne. And I regularly have to recenter and say, oh, no, Jesus, you are on the throne. You get to dictate what I do with my life, and I'm living for you. You're, you're, you're the purpose of my life. Here's what's tricky. Do you know what it's called when we elevate something above, other th above God? Do you know what it's called? Idolatry. It's idolatry. 
Idolatry is elevating anything above God. We may not be like Jeroboam in the story that have these golden calf idols, but in our day and age, it's way more tricky, I think. It's way more tricky to, to identify these idols that we have. We all have idols in our lives. You know, if you remember the gospel of wholeness, my dad referred to these idols as empty wells. What is that thing that you're drawing from? What is that thing that you're living for or that thing that you're trying to pursue? We don't have statues. But here's the thing. These golden calves that Jeroboam had, these idols, he didn't have them because he really enjoyed statues. He wasn't worshiping statues. He wasn't like, do you guys see the craftsmanship of these statues? That's not what he was worshiping. He was worshiping what was at the heart of these statues. And at the heart was security. He thought these statues would bring him victory in war. That's what these golden calves did. They were supposed to bring him victory. So they would win in battle. They would bring these golden calves out. So at the heart of what Jeroboam was worshiping, he was worshiping power. He was worshiping security. He was worshiping, you know, being a victorious king. And he said, I'm going to put that above God. And maybe he didn't say it with his words, but obviously he said it with his actions. On the throne of Jeroboam's life, and I don't know him personally. I mean, I don't know. I've, have any of you guys ever met Jeroboam? No, but may, I really believe that the, on the throne of his life was being powerful, being a victorious king. Idolatry is elevating anything above God. It's, it's saying, this is where I find my hope. This is where I find my peace. This is where my security comes from. And here, the tricky part is this, is that, like I was saying, it's, we don't have, you know, idol statues in our culture. We have things that are really hard to identify. And what's really tricky is a lot of times, idols can be things that are good things things that God gave us, that he's called us to care for or to value or to love. But we have elevated them to, the, to, to put them on the throne of our life, to make the thing that we're saying, this is where I get my purpose. Maybe for some of us, we would say that career is on the throne of our life. You know, if I just had that career, like if I was doing this, then I would be happy. Then I would be successful if I had that job. You know, for a lot of the, the young people here who are graduating from high school or in college, if I get into this field, that's, gonna, that's what's going to make me feel complete. Or for those of us, you know, like are working crazy hours, and we're saying, yeah, God, I know that you want me to be uh, more present with my family and spend time with my family, but if I don't put in these hours, I'm not going to get that promotion. I know you want me to get more involved in church, God, but, man, i got to put these hours in. Like, I can't get involved in a small group. I can't serve. I can't do those things that you probably want me to do because i got to work. Work is on the throne. And again, we wouldn't, we, most of us wouldn't say that. Most of, wouldn't, most of us wouldn't say work is on the throne of our life, but is our life demonstrating that? Is that what our life is saying? 
Another one that I, that I feel like is really common is family. Family and relationships. If I just found a spouse, if I just found a, a good husband, then, then, I, would, then I, I would have joy. Then my life would have meaning if that person would love me. Or, or, you know, my kids are the most important thing in my life. You know, their extracurricular activities, art, sports, whatever, they trump everything else. They dominate my calendar. And again, I can't get involved in church, really, because my kids, you know, do this. Is family more important than God in your life? Again, we're, we're called to love family. We're called to care for our family, but has it become something that is an idol? You know what's become an idol in my life oftentimes? If I had to be really honest, this is what God has been convicting me of, and if, when I look back at my life, this is the thing that typically is on the throne that I have to kick off, is my happiness. My happiness. We are so programmed in our culture. Our culture tells us that your happiness is the most important thing. It's in the Declaration of Independence that we have the right to the pursuit of happiness. That's what we want to pursue is happiness. And so if anything else gets in your way, if a, if a family member, if, if your career is getting in your way, get rid of it. Pursue your happiness. I remember watching this movie a number of years back called The Pursuit of Happiness. It was a Will Smith movie, and I, and I really enjoyed it. Um, it was about this guy who basically had this, this dream, and I don't even remember what he was trying to become, but he had this dream to, to pursue this certain career, and he lost everything to pursue this career. His, his wife left him, and him and his son ended up having to live on the streets so he could pursue this career. And I remember, you know, being really caught up and being like, this is a beautiful story. And then after the movie, I remember thinking, like, he made his kid be homeless so he could pursue his dreams? Like, that just doesn't seem right with me. And I don't know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not judging the guy. Maybe I'm a little bit. But, um, like, we put happiness on the throne of our life. We say, yeah, my wife doesn't make me happy anymore. This woman makes me happy. Yeah, and God, I know that the Bible says that this particular behavior is wrong, but it makes me happy. Or like, I know that this person is not right for me. You know, for, for some of the single people here, I know that this person isn't right for me, but I'm, I'm, I feel lonely, and this person makes me feel happy. And God, don't you ultimately want me to be happy? Isn't that what you want, is for me to be happy? And let me just say this. Do you know that God's ultimate will for your life is not for you to be happy? It's for you to be holy. God wants you, he's calling you into holiness, not to pursue happiness. Happiness isn't a bad thing, but we have just made that the endless pursuit to be satisfied and happy. But God wants you to make you holy. God wants to create. He wants to set you apart and make you more like Him. He wants to, to make you who you were made to be. To, to you know, call out in you those things that He made you for. 
And not so that we could be a church of carbon copies of one another, but that we could be this beautiful mosaic of of people who look different and act different and have different passions, but together we reflect this infinite God. God doesn't want us not to worship idols because he's like a jerk. He wants us to worship him because that makes us who we are supposed to be. He, He calls us to worship him because that's what we are created to do. He's not saying don't value, you know, don't elevate this thing because, you know, just for arbitrary reasons. He's saying don't elevate it because it's not good for you. It's not good for you. Happiness is cheap. Pursuing happiness is cheap because you know what is so much better than happiness? Joy. Joy is so much better than happiness because happiness is is completely conditional on your circumstances. If this thing is working out for me, then I am happy. If this person is with me, then I'm happy. If they leave or if something happens to them, if, 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 you know, then, then I'm not happy anymore. Happiness is cheap, but joy transcends your situations. It transcends your situations. Joy comes from the the, the security of knowing who God is and who you are. That you, who you were created to be. And that security of saying, I am submitted to the king of the universe. And that brings me joy. That brings me hope. That brings me peace. Those things, you know, they, they, they trump happiness any day of the week. But the trick is, is we turn to these idols. We turn to things like career or money or success or, or, you know, whatever to give us those things, to give us peace, to give us hope, to give us joy, to give us security. But they will not give you those things. They cannot give you those things. They weren't made to give you those things. The only things that give us, the only thing that gives us those, those, those core longings, like hope and joy and identity, is Jesus. He's the only thing that can give us those things. They may give us some kind of happiness in the moment or some kind of earthly success, but they don't give us what we're really looking for. I love what, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. That's, and he goes on to say, because where, where you store your treasures, that's where your heart is. That's what you're, you're putting on the throne of your life. See, if we put our, our you know, if our, if our desires are to have earthly success or, or, or earthly happiness, they're going to end one day. They are not eternal. They could leave any time. But if we invest in the things of the kingdom, the things of God, those things are eternal. They last forever. They last forever. Worship is the way we live. Worship is saying, who is on the throne? And what is the the purpose of our life? 
And Abijah said, God, you are on the throne. And while worship is a lifestyle, let me just say this. What we do here on the weekends when we gather together and sing these songs has extreme significance. I'm not saying it's not important. It is, it is extremely, extremely important. When we, when we take time to say to God, listen, let me say it this way. So the example that I gave earlier about if I told my wife, you know, once a week that, you know, I loved her, but then I didn't live it, it wouldn't mean anything. I still need to tell my wife that I love her. I still need to vocalize it. There is power in our words. There is power in our words, and there is power in our worship. Worship is an incredibly powerful thing. When we speak out truths against, uh, to God, and it's extremely powerful when the people of God gather together in unity and say it together. When we sing out these truths about who God is, it is extremely powerful. It is a weapon. If we read on in the story, it says, Now Jeroboam had sent troops around to the rear, so that while he was in front of Judah, the ambush was behind them. Judah turned and saw that they were being attacked at both the front and the rear, and they cried out to the Lord, and the priests blew their trumpets, and the men of Judah raised the battle cry. And at the sound of their battle cry, God routed Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. The Israelites fled before Judah, and God delivered them into their hands. The Judah, who's outnumbered two to one, who's facing this army that they could never, never really fight. They won the battle, and they didn't win the battle because they had better swords. They didn't win the battle because they had a better military plan. They won the battle through their worship, crying out to God, worshiping Him, blowing the priests, blowing their trumpets. That's what won the battle. And we actually see stories like this all throughout the Bible. We see stories like this all throughout the Bible. A lot of us are familiar with the, the story of Jericho, where the walls come tumbling down. You know what caused the walls to come tumbling down? The, the, the shouts of the people, the worship of the people, and, all, and God came and, and tore down the walls through their worship. You see this story where where a, a, a military battle was won. We see many stories where military battles were won. We, we see stories where, where Paul was in prison and, and through his worship, chains broke off through worship. And let me just say this. If, imagine what would happen if our church devoted ourselves to be a passionate, worshiping church, gathering together to, to worship God. Can you imagine the walls that would tumble down, that would come crashing down in our lives, the chains that would be broken in our life, the battles that would be won in our life through our worship? You know, I'd, I'd venture to say that every single one of us here has some kind of battle going on in our life. 
big ones, small ones, but we have some kind of a battle. Maybe it has to do like a, a battle with sin or addiction or, or maybe it's a battle with sickness or depression or something like that. Maybe it's a battle financially or a battle with, you know, something happening with your kids or family. We've just faced this battle and maybe we've been facing the same battle for years. And we've tried so many things We've tried so many things. We've, maybe we've gone to counseling. We've seen doctors. We've, 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 we've used, you know, different systems and read books and did all of these things which can be extremely, extremely helpful. But maybe the key to winning these battles is our worship. Maybe the key to winning these battles is our worship. I, I truly believe that we are not called to be people who are going out and trying to look for different idols in our lives and identifying idols. That's not the point of this sermon. The point is, is we need to get our eyes off of idols. We need to get our eyes off of problems, off of battles, and on to God. If we want to, to overcome the battles in our life, we need to get our eyes off of ourselves, off of the issues, and on to Him doesn't mean that we don't address them. It doesn't mean that we don't present them to him. It doesn't mean that we don't go see doctors or do these things. But worshiping him, getting our eyes focused on him, is, I think, the key, the greatest weapon we have in, in, in these battles. And I just want to invite you guys to, tonight. We are gathering together as a church to have a worship night. We're gathering together to worship God tonight. And I would love to see our, our whole church there. Because can you imagine tonight when we are worshiping God, can you imagine the things that will happen in our lives? The things that, you know, we'll be freed from. Can you imagine what will happen in the community of Delaware County and, and, and surrounding areas? Or what would happen in our country? We're facing crazy things in our country. Or what will happen in our world if the people of God came together and worshipped him and said, we don't know what to do about these things, but you do. So we worship you. So I'd love it if we came together tonight and worshipped God with all of our hearts. What would happen? Who knows? You know, a few weeks ago, a woman was, was healed. She had major back problems, and she was healed in the middle of worship. No one laid hands on her. No one prayed for her. It was through worship that she was healed. And stories like that happen over and over again. And let, me, let, me, let me end by saying this. Our worship is extremely important. Who we put on the throne, what, we're, what we are striving for is extremely important. But the reason that we worship God isn't so he comes and wins the battles for us. That's great that he does that. He's a good God. But the reason that we worship God is because he has already won the battle. He won the battle, the greatest battle. See, when God made us, he made us for a reason. He made us to, be, to have intimacy with him. To be connected with him, to have purpose. And we lost that purpose. When we, when we abandon God and we turn to these other things. 
And we've lost our purpose. And so now, I, I really truly believe so many of us are, are wandering through life wanting purpose, wanting identity, wanting security. But because sin and death entered the world, we lost that. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, he's offering us the opportunity to find that again. He's saying, I, I fought that battle that you could never fight. Just like Abijah stood before an army that he could never defeat, many of us are standing, we, we stand before the, 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 the battle of sin and death, and Jesus says, I won that battle. I won it. And all you have to do is accept it. See, I really believe this, this story is a picture of what Jesus was going to do about a thousand years later. That Jesus was going to come and win the ultimate battle in our place. So I want to give some of us an opportunity that have never, never accepted that. Never accepted God's forgiveness and, and that, that what he did on the cross. And what I want us to do is to bow our heads. We can all close our eyes and bow our heads. I'm going to say a prayer. And if you want that today, I want you to say the prayer with me. Jesus, I, I know that I have turned to so many things to, to give me hope and peace and security. But Lord, I want today to turn to you. And I accept what you did on the cross. I accept your forgiveness. And I want to be restored into what you made me for. Let's keep our heads bowed. If you said that prayer with me, can you just raise your hand? Bless you guys. We can, we can open our eyes. Why don't we stand? You know, we're, we don't have as much time as I'd like, but Nancy had this word this, during worship that some of us are, feel like almost like physically unable to, to, to get our eyes on to Jesus. And I, I really believe 